Hey there, thanks for tuning into the Flip the Script podcast. I wanted to take a quick moment to express my gratitude for your continued support. As a listener, you play a crucial role in the success of this podcast. And there's so many ways you can help out and I'd love to share a few with you. For starters, you can support the podcast with a monthly donation as low as 99 cents at flipthescriptpodcast.com. Every little bit counts. And if you want to show your love even more, don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. I read every review and really appreciate those who've left reviews already. And last but not least, be sure to check out the affiliate links in the show notes. There is a small kickback that is received from any purchases that you might make. And of course, follow flipthescript.pod on Instagram. It's also a great way to stay up to date on the latest episodes and behind the scenes content. Thank you again for being a part of the Flip the Script community. I couldn't do it without you. Are you tired of spending hours sharing and sending offers to likers? Introducing Posher VA, the web program that will save you time and increase your sales. With Posher VA, you can automatically share your closet, send offers to likers, and schedule your share times all with just a few clicks. Using code ELDUCHO, you can try Posher VA for two weeks for free, no credit card required. Posher VA is not just another program, it is your program. Say goodbye to manual sharing and hello to even more time in your business. Try Posher VA today using code ELDUCHO, E-L-D-U-C-H-O. Welcome to the Flip the Script podcast. I'm your host, Denali, and I'm a full-time reseller on eBay and Poshmark. My store and closet name is Elducho, E-L-D-U-C-H-O. And you can find me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube as Elducho Thrift. I'm very excited about this week's guest. I had the opportunity to interview a friend of mine, and her name is Ashley. You can find Ashley on Instagram under the username millennial.mouse and all of her information will be in the show notes of this episode for you. Ashley has had a long history working in fashion that started off with her time at fashion school. She spent a good portion of her career working for the brand BCBG and she shares so much good information about her time there. She stumbled into full-time reselling when she needed to make some quick cash by selling clothes that she had amassed during her corporate career. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hi, Ashley. Thanks for being on the podcast with me today. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you here. Ashley and I were just talking a little bit before we get started. And one thing I forgot to mention to you, Ashley, is happy belated birthday. Thank you. Yeah, so exciting. I'm I'm just delighted that you have agreed to be with me on the podcast today. You know, I've been following you on social media for a while, but oftentimes, you know, with social media, it's like you, you follow someone for a while, but you've never really had a deep conversation with them. (laughs) Exactly. So I guess I'm, I, you know, I'm really excited to dive in more and hear about you. So with that said, you know, can you tell me more about yourself and what has led you into reselling? Well, I've always been interested in fashion and stuff like that. 
I know most people have a backstory where they come of like, oh, I've been a thrifter all my life, or I've done this, or I used to go here, there with, you know, my mom or grandma or whoever, you know, maybe my, my journey into this was not bad. I was more into fashion. I went to FIT in New York for college, did two years there, got my associate's degree. And then I tried to go another route into self-employment, which was being a makeup artist. But my anxiety at my age at that time was I was only 20, 21, would not allow me to be an entrepreneur at that time because I could not fathom spending money to make money. Mm -hmm. So I essentially from there, I went into an office job. I was able to get a job at BCBG corporate office, mainly based off of my degree and where I went to school. They literally just looked at, hey, you went to FIT. We're going to hire you. Okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how my journey started there. Obviously, I worked there for over eight years in two different stints, essentially. So I had multiple jobs. I did many different things. I wore a lot of different hats and my positions that I was in forced me to wear a lot of different hats within the company. So I learned a lot about the fashion industry in and of itself because I was work. I had to work across all departments, whether it be like operations or uh, buying and planning, merchandising, stuff like that. So I was there. I was still working there. Come April 2017, actually, a friend of mine mentioned this app called Poshmark. I was like, what? what, what is this? And she was like, you know, I'm just using She was actually looking to pay for her wedding. And she was also trying to get some extra cash. And she's like, yeah, I sell my stuff that I don't wear anymore on there. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, people don't buy that. Like, people are not going to buy your <laughs> old clothes. You're crazy. So I downloaded the app and just kind of forgot about it. And then August came around of that same year. My partner was unemployed at the time. And honestly, we needed to make rent. And I didn't know if we were going to make it that month. So I started listing all of this stuff because I had so many, so much clothes from BCBG because we had sample sales and I got a bunch of stuff from the sample sales, which is always super cheap. I also got a clothing allowance when I worked there for a couple of years. Wow. Um, yeah. So, and that was like $500 a quarter. Wow. So I got a ton. I had so many free clothes at that point in time and like good clothes too. Not just like, mm-hmm. you know, run in the middle, like forever 21 or whatever like I they were decent clothes mm-hmm. so I started listing some of my stuff I did not make any sales that first month <laughs> <laughs> to not help pay the rent but I did make the rent so that that's good but and then I just kind of kept doing it and you know at that point my partner got in a job and I just kind of felt myself like I I couldn't understand what my draw was why I was still doing it because mm-hmm. I didn't really need the money at that point in time. I just kept doing it I kept going on. I was sharing my listings. I was listing more things, you know, and it, it, there wasn't really a point in it anymore. I could have given it up, but I just, I felt like I like needed to keep going with it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then about November, December of that year, I had found out that my job at BCBG, they're relocating offices and they were moving into Hollywood. Um, Me commuting to Hollywood, that's uh, on a good day. That's like an hour and a half drive for me. And if I got hit with traffic, yeah, that's way longer. So I knew that I, I knew that I was going to need to move on from the job and I had really outgrown my job at BCBG too. And there really was not a position that they could offer me that would have, because I was moving from a business analyst, executive assistant, but because of the level that I worked at with my bosses and the level my bosses were at, there really wasn't a position that they could make for me that would have been pay me correctly or was confident for my experience. Mm-hmm. 
So I just really had grown out of it. So I knew once the time for the office move had come around, I knew that I was going to have to leave the job. So I figured um, November, December that year, I was like, I had discovered on YouTube that people actually make a full-time job selling clothing. And I was like, (laughs) in used clothing, I was like, what the hell is this? (laughs) What sort of chaos is this? (laughs) And so I just delved headfirst into YouTube and started watching anything and everything I can get my hands on. And so January of that year, I did my first bins. Well, actually, I didn't go. My partner went for me. (laughs) <laughs> he went to the bins and it was after the flea market. He got the, he got a bunch of stuff at the flea market. He actually found this one of my favorite flips I've ever had, which is a pair of these tree religion jeans that he got at the flea market for like $5. I sold them for a hundred. So, and then he went to the bins and now my bins is very different than most places. They do have tables like most bins, but they do auctions. And he just stumbled into there and he called me. He was like, Hey, I'm going to need you to bring the other car up. I was like, why? He's like, <laughs> I just spent like $50 and I got you a lot of clothes. I was like, what are you talking about? So I got up there and at the time we didn't know that like you could sort the stuff there. You can leave what you don't want. We just took everything. And that was like my first big bulk buy was that January. Part of the reason why he went and I didn't go was because I was still working at BCBG. And at the time I had to do a lot of work on Sundays to prepare for Mondays. And this was on a Sunday. And so from there, that was like my first buy into experimenting of, can I do this full time? Can I make a living with it? And then came April, actually no, was April? March, March of that year. I came to a crossroads with that job and essentially was like, I was either going to have to accept another position or I was going to have to hand in my resignation letter. That was my only two choices at that point in time. I really didn't want to accept the other position because I didn't think it would be fair to only stay for like three months Mm because I knew that I was planning on leaving. So I was forced in, I wasn't forced. I was kind of put into like a rock and hard place to leave my job earlier than I had wanted to. So March 15th, 2018, I went full time. Yeah. Haven't really looked back since. So I had never bought clothes secondhand before I discovered eBay and Poshmark. I had never done any of that before it was all very foreign to me but I knew clothing I knew buying I knew fashion industry I knew how to identify trends stuff like that I knew the the logistics and the operation that needed to go into running a business and also specifically like a fashion related business so a lot of that helped me to get where I am now and was able to set me up and one of like the things I always like I feel like I did really good is I was able to set up like the core of my business right from the beginning mm-hmm. because like with this type of systems and stuff, because of all the stuff that I saw and experienced at BCBG, I was able to take that and put that on a micro level and apply it to myself. So that was very helpful for me. I'm, I'm, I've always been very thankful for that job, but um, I will never go back to corporate ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I cannot do that to my. I ever, the funny thing is, is every time I always hear that you used to work in HR, I always think about the HR people at my old job because that was one of the other departments I always used to work with too. And I could just imagine you at BCBG too for some reason. <laughs> um, so yeah, I will never go back to working for somebody else ever again. But I am thankful for the experience that that did give me. So. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that sentiment. Yeah, yeah it's great. That's... It's, you know, it's been great life experience, but, and it gave us the tools to get yes. to where we're at now. 
yes. but we don't want to go back. <laughs> and everyone always says like, well, I don't use my degree and stuff like that. I was like, well, yeah, I kind of don't use my degree, but my degree also got me that job that got me the experience exactly. that I needed to run this business. So in a way I do use my degree, but right. in a very roundabout way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a nice compliment to, yes. <laughs> to the work and life experience. Mm-hmm. Okay. So going back in your journey, back to when you decided to go to fashion school, now, I know you live in California now, but the fashion school that mm-hmm. you attended was in New York. Yes. That's a big decision to move across country to go to fashion school. Certainly, there are fashion schools around the country, um, and certainly some in California. I am not originally from California. That's why I grew up in oh, Philadelphia. Oh, okay. Yeah, I grew up in Philadelphia. When I was 18, I moved out almost immediately. I mean, I moved into the college dorms in August, and I graduated okay. in June. So I went to New York and then after my stay at FIT, I decided I wanted to be a makeup artist and go freelance and try and work for myself that way. And with that, I moved out to California the first time. <laughs> Got it. Okay. And so yeah. for fashion school, you know, I know that there's a lot of, I had friends when I was in college who were going to fashion school and I know that there's a lot of different things that you can kind of pursue and what your emphasis will be at fashion school. Mm-hmm what, what was yours? Like, what were you going there for and hoping to learn or gain out of going to Um, school there? I went to school for fashion merchandising management, which essentially just teaches you how to be a buyer. But at the time I didn't really understand what a buyer was. I thought buyer meant like, I get to be a personal shopper. So I was Mm -hmm. like, I get to shop for a living. Great. And then I learned (laughs) what a buyer actually is. I was like, Oh, I don't know if I want to do this. So what is a buyer? I mean, can you tell me more? Cause I don't know that. I mean, my far away view of what a buyer is, are they just buying the future styles for the department stores? Um, yeah. So, well, for the retail stores, the department stores, wherever you are. So essentially what they're doing is they are buying and planning for, well, I guess buying and planning are technically two different things, but that's a whole other story, but they do work <laughs> very closely together. They're buying the styles from the factories, essentially, and then using it that way. And then whatever they buy gets shipped into like the warehouses and then that ends up going out to the stores. Yeah, it's like it's like being a personal shopper, but for the entire company. Okay. I guess you could say. But also there's more nuances to it. It's It, it is a very complicated thing. And then there's... And there's a lot of math that goes into it, which don't get me wrong. I love math. I almost went to college for mathematics. Um, I was accepted into, originally before I got my acceptance letter into FIT, I was going to go to Temple University in Philly for mathematics. Oh, awesome. So yeah, having the math part wasn't like a downfall to me, but it is, there is a lot of that to it. It's not so much knowing the trends and the styles of like that. There is a lot of other backend stuff with it, so Okay. Got it. Okay. So that's what you went there for. And then you said you also pursued with makeup. What was it exactly? Went to school to be a makeup artist. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. So what, what spawned that? What, where, where did that come from? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I loved makeup. Um, and I loved, I always loved the film industry. I ended up, I've at this point in time, I feel like I've done a lot of college um, with not a lot of degrees. Well, actually, I have a bunch of degrees. They're all little tiny degrees. I still have a bachelor's, right. technically. 
and it to me it was a way to break into like the film industry and I've always loved films and stuff like that and I didn't really understand like what I wanted to do with films but I loved makeup and so it just kind of just went from there and I really I, I did enjoy it and if I my anxiety would have allowed me to be self-employed at that time I probably would have stuck with it but the concept of having to spend money to make money is something that blew my mind Mm. and I could not mentally grasp it and I had a lot of anxiety around it and specifically like financial anxiety and I had always kind of had that even growing up so so yeah that took me out to California where I fell in love with California and I'm going to be CBG (laughs) Yeah, so you get the job at BCBG and, you know, you and I were talking beforehand and you kind of mentioned it here that you worked in a lot of different areas at BCBG. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm curious, where did, you know, what departments did you find that you really thrived in? Well, even though I worked in a lot of different aspects at BCBG, they were all within the same department, which is considered retail operations or store operations, some places call it. But the positions that I I held different positions within that department, but that department is by nature a very cross-functional department because you're forced to work with different departments because you are filtering everything out to the stores. Everything that Mm -hmm. goes into the stores has to go through you. So my job there that I held the longest, I was in that position for like five years, I think. I was an executive assistant, but I was an executive assistant to three VPs. And those VPs were the VP of stores, partner shops. And so working with them, they had to work with other departments, go to these cross-functional meetings and stuff like that. So a lot of times I would have to go to those meetings for them. And it got to a point where I was essentially their stand and I was making decisions for the stores and stuff like that, that people didn't even realize wasn't like, because my boss had given me the authority to make those decisions because they knew that I had, I could make those decisions, Mm -hmm. but it looked like it was coming from them (laughs) essentially. But it was really coming from me and I had become like a go-to point. I was, you know, working with directors. I was working with all these directors at a director level, but I was only an assistant. Yeah. So that job definitely gave me the most experience and knowledge that I've been able to carry through to where I am now. Even though I did eventually outgrow that job, it, it gave me the foundation of what I have now. Yeah, that sounds very stressful. I mean, when you said working under three VPs, I mean, working under one VP. <laughs> so yeah incredibly stressful at three sounds overwhelming it it got to the point where it wasn't no longer three it was three at one point in time they changed it to then I had two and then from there I technically only had one but then I also had three directors so it was like (laughs) you're you're always juggling multiple people it sounds like exactly and then I had to because my bosses weren't necessarily always in the office a ton but their boss was I had to be the go-between for their boss as well and be like back up in that situation so I had to juggle her as well as my bosses my boss's boss and my bosses (laughs) okay we we need now we need like a a map here (laughs) oh god yeah that that organizational chart is wild (laughs) exactly okay so you know you said that you were sitting in on these meetings and making these important and yeah, I don't know. It sounds like probably scary decisions too. I would be scared to make them. Yeah. You know, was there ever a time that you look back on maybe a decision that you had to make that I, I guess two ways, let's go with this one that you felt really proud of that was impactful to the company. And then maybe on the opposite end, one where you felt like, I think I made a mistake and maybe your bosses felt you made a mistake. 
Well, I definitely made lots of mistakes. I mean, we actually <laughs> learned from them. Absolutely. Um, I think probably the most thing that I'm proud of is um, the company went through a really deep reorganization. And so this isn't necessarily has really an impact on what I do today, but the company went through a deep reorganization and there was a lot of instructional materials that needed to go out for that. And a lot of training materials and stuff like that. So I had actually worked with them to design this whole packet. And like I went through and I was in studying instructional design. I was, you know, going through all that, like trying to figure out the best way to communicate this type of big changes and in information mm-hmm. to the point where people would get it and feel comfortable with it. Working on that was probably one of the my best achievements I did and also that's probably the most substantial one that like is tangible. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one was learning how to manage up, essentially learning to how to manage your bosses. Mm-hmm. That is a, that is an art form. Yeah. I will say that. Um, <laughs> but, and I figured it out beautifully. I finally got into that stride and I, I really just, you know, figured it out perfectly. I don't know if I could ever do that again. <laughs> <laughs> as far as a mistake goes, I mean, yeah, I made lots of them. I would forget to do certain things sometimes. I would forget to send out certain communications or I would look over something and miss like a huge, huge impactful like date or something like that where I did it wrong or something. So it's hard to really pinpoint one thing per se, especially because my bosses were really, really forgiving when they came to that type of stuff. Oh, that's Um, nice. Yeah, so... Yeah, I don't think I have like something that's like, you know, concrete that I could say that like is my biggest mistake. I just know that I made a ton of them. <laughs> right, right. No, I but, get that. But that's yeah, how we get I, better. Exactly. My bosses always use that as a position for me to grow and understand and learn where I went wrong. So, yeah. So, yeah. working at, you know, any fashion company is really exciting. And, you know, when I think of BCBG, you know, it's a, it's a big brand, right? And there's Mm -hmm. lots of different lines. Can you talk to me, I guess, like as maybe a reseller trying to understand BCBG, you know, when sourcing, right? There's, (laughs) there's a lot, (laughs) yeah, there's lines of BCBG that I've seen really high MSRP on the tags. And then I see BCBG that's, I wouldn't touch with a 40 foot pole. Can you talk to me about as a reseller understanding that brand? That brand is probably one of the most complicated brands out there. BCBG. So what you want to look for are the tags that say BCBG Max Azria. It's going to be in like their iconic logo type of thing. Those are the ones that you really want to look for. That is their, their mid to high line. That is like their, the, the core of what BCBG at least was when I left. I know they've gone through a lot of company restructure. Jackets and dresses is what they were known for essentially. They made other things obviously, but that was like their iconic thing. And now you have, then you have BCBG Generation. BCBG Generation was created by Joyce Azria. I think it's Joyce Azria. Uh, it was one of Max's daughters. And so that is the lower, like, think of it as like the juniors line. It's not okay. necessarily junior sizing, but it's that same vibe. It's the younger one, much more lower MSRP, everything like that. BCBG Girls is a subdivision line. Just stay away from it. Just don't even go near it. <laughs> um, and then there is BCBG Max Azria Runway, which are is essentially the runway styles, and that's only sold in select locations throughout the country, and it's always been that way. Um, and that is that is, a higher in line? 
Yes, that is much higher end. One of my runway jackets, so obviously I did not pay this much for it, but one of the (laughs) runway jackets I still have, the MSRP on it, was $1,400. Wow. So I did not pay that. I will say that. I did pay like $400 for it, though. (laughs) (laughs) But so that is their higher end line. Then there's also some old deadlines that they don't make anymore, but you'll still see floating around. Um, For example, just Max Azria, the brand Mm -hmm. itself not bcbg max azria it's just gonna say max azria that is a similar similar to the runway collection and maybe it's probably between runway and bcbg which isn't really like a big gap in and of itself mm-hmm. and and then there is max azria artillier i think that's how you pronounce it i always get it wrong mm-hmm. that's like equivalent that's even higher than runway pretty much but those both those lines are deadlines at this point but you will still find them thrifting, but those are like, those you want to go for if you're thrifting, those are going to get you some money. And then I think they've sold it off now, but for when I worked there and up until recently, I think um, they also owned Hervé Leger, which some people will pronounce Mm -hmm. Herb Ledger. It's not pronounced (laughs) Herb Ledger. It's pronounced Hervé Leger, or you could just call it HL. Um, and they're obviously known for their iconic bandage dresses. So that's like super high end on that point. That was higher than like BCBG runway. I don't think that they own them now anymore. I think they did sell it off when BCBG got bought out, but when I was there, they still had them. Got it. And because the company has been around for a while and you can tell us if you know how long they've been around, is there anything that's considered vintage of BCBG? Yes. They've been around since 90s, somewhere. Okay. Maybe, me, uh, I don't think the 80s, definitely the 90s. And I mean, they bought Hervé Leger, which is, they bought that established brand. So obviously there's vintage of that. Um, But mm-hmm. yes, there is, there is vintage BCBG out there, especially, okay. So this is where it's going to get a little weird. You kind of have to forget <laughs> everything that I said about all of those different <laughs> brands. Okay. Uh, because it, there's also that subline of BCBG that came out and during the Y2K era, which is, you're going to get the juicy couture vibes you're going to get the velour suits you're going to get the track Mm -hmm. jackets stuff like that Mm -hmm. when it comes to looking at the brand tags and everything like that just forget anything i just said about all of that (laughs) other stuff (laughs) because that was like those are bolos now obviously because everyone wants a juicy couture track suit or the von dutch track suit and stuff like that Mm -hmm. whereas bcbg put them out there as well so but yes there is definitely vintage bcbg out there even older than y2k but i would say probably Probably the Y2K stuff is probably going to be your biggest bolo out of it. And then from there, it's going to be the runway stuff, Um, whether it be the standard BCBG line or the BCBG runway specifically line, because that came out later. There was stuff that walked the runway that wasn't quote unquote tagged BCBG runway, if that makes sense. Got it. Okay. Was there, is there ever a tag that just says BCBG on it and nothing else? Probably. Okay. But don't <laughs> get it. Like, if you did, unless, like... it's a, unless it's a juicy, like a juicy style tracksuit, don't get it. If it just says BCBG. Got it. <laughs> if it says okay, BCBG girls yeah. or Max and Miley. Max and Miley was a Walmart brand mind. Okay. Definitely do not get that. That went on. That only lasted like a year. That's the collaboration I did with Miley Cyrus. Okay. Yeah. That's the thing. I feel like there's been so many bcbg tag somebody needs to add that to like a website of all the tags that they've yeah had. yeah that's been on one of my like things i wanted to create for like instagram or whatever is really going through like the bcbg stuff and tags but B- 
BCBG has had so they they've always tried to they've done a lot of things okay so I'm not trying to speak ill of the company but they've done a lot of things in their years to stay afloat and make money mm-hmm. and sometimes that comes down to creating these weird wacky off-brand brands yeah. that would not would be sold to places like Ross and places like Marshalls and things like that so they did what they had for a very long time to stay afloat and to stay in the green. I mean, at one point, I remember one time I was with the company, they had like 11 years of year over year positive comps. Like that's unheard of, Mm -hmm. unheard of. But they were doing what they needed to do to stay afloat. And sometimes that meant creating weird diffusion lines that did not stay around very long. Right. So they've, done a lot of stuff over the years so there are some things just to kind of avoid and like I said the tags and some of that stuff really gets really wild but they diluted their brand that way unfortunately and that's what I was gonna ask is that yeah what has it done to the brand now it, it really and I this was a concern that I voiced while I was at the company I said you guys are killing your own brand Mm-hmm. By doing this type of thing, by, you know, continuing to, to sell stuff to Ross and Marshalls and TJ Maxx or wherever it's going to be. Um, mm-hmm. And there was a couple other things I was, because I was actually one of the people that I worked closely with in my department. She was one of my best friends too. She moved to the um, marketing department and part of her thing was branding. And she was asking me all these questions. She was like, I want to get it from your perspective. I was like, told her flat out, I was like, because they keep doing all of these these brand concepts that are lowering the eyes and the image of the brand itself, they're really bringing themselves down and they're going to be their own demise at this point. And I, I truly think at this point, there's no bringing that back. There's no one doing that. Yeah. They've done their damage and it's, they had their opportunity to try and get out of it and they didn't take it. Mm-hmm. So That's tough. Yeah, I mean, now they'd have to live with it. And they got bought out by the company that owns, they own Joe's Jeans, Fry Boots, Aquatalia, Spider, a few other brands too. But they got bought out because they were going bankrupt. Mm-hmm. So, and that's, t- that's tough. I'm sure when you're working for a company and you're really passionate about it and to see that, that, that happening and those sort of decisions being made and probably feeling, you know, powerless over... Yeah the direction that it's moving in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, a little bit of a, not a total left turn from working there, but a left turn (laughs) (laughs) in a different way. I'm curious about this fashion budget that you had. So, okay. So because I worked within the executive realm, I guess you want to call it. Yeah. um, I had to, because I was, I got to the point where I was you know, having FaceTime with director levels and above and VP levels and above, and at sometimes even Max himself, you know, I, I had to look the part, unfortunately. And so <laughs> part of that, I mean, my bosses got one too. Everyone got different amounts. Um, and there was other executive assistants at my level that got it too. I had to look the part. So I got a gift card um, every quarter for $500. And it also worked in tandem with my employee discount which the employee discount at BCBG is extremely generous. So I got a lot of clothes with that. And so did the $500 have to be spent on the brand? 
Uh, yes. So it was a BCBG gift card. Got so, okay. well, gift certificate because they didn't have gift cards at the time because they were still living yeah. in like 2000. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it could be used at any BCBG brand except for Hervé Leger. Well, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, that's $500. And was that, sorry, did you say per quarter? Per quarter, yeah. So it equated wow. to $2,000 in compensation. Okay, so you really did have a lot of clothes to sell. Yeah, and also, too, for about two years there, my partner also worked in the warehouse, um, and so he ran the sample sales. Um, oh. And then when you run the sample sale, or when you work at the sample sales, you also get an allowance to spend at the sample sales. It's like your compensation. And he still got one, which I never really understood because it was literally his job to run these sample sales and work them. But so from there, so he got an allowance. And he obviously had to work the entire sample sales, so he got the highest allowance. So I would get all these, all this free stuff at the sample sales too. That's and amazing. And it finally got to a point where I could not spend enough of the sample sale money to, I, some of the stuff that he would be getting into either put at the employee store or put for the sample sales. I would just have him start like building a box, like throughout the whole year. And I would just buy it all at the sample sale because I literally could not get enough stuff at the sample sale to, <laughs> to spend the entire stipend. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. What I'm yeah. like, how did they sell it? Was it? Per piece like tops five dollars or what's the uh, pricing yeah I think it was category pricing if I remember correctly um yeah. and if you got a good cashier they might hook you up with different things <laughs> 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 yeah it was it, it was and then they would have some areas of the sample sale where they would have things that were like a little bit differently priced like especially like the jackets and stuff like that I actually got a Max Azria um leather jacket at one of them Actually, nice. quite the leather jacket collection from BCBG. <laughs> um, none of it fits anymore, but I can't part with it yet. <laughs> I, I get that. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, I got a lot. I, and I've, I've sold most of it at this point now. Um, with the exception of my jacket collection, I've sold most of it, whether it be selling it directly individually myself or I think it was about two, three years ago I did on Instagram. I was like, all right, I have so many BCBG dresses at this point in time. Some of them do need to be dry cleaned. Some of them do need repairs. Some mm-hmm. of them are, you know, some of them are worth a lot. Some of them are not worth as much. I was like, but I need to get rid of them. And I cannot, I cannot look at them in my closet anymore because at that point it was bringing back too many of the memories of working there. Yeah. Um, and the last couple of years weren't that great working there. <laughs> so I was like, I really just want these memories and I don't want to, I don't want to sell the stuff individually. I just want it gone. So I did on Instagram. I was like, all right. I'm doing boxes of dresses, $5 through Poshmark with the shipping. Wow. And I sold them, I sold it like instantly, practically. And then I found more and a friend of mine was like, hey, I'll just buy it from you directly. So I sent her like a 50 pound box of clothes. That's crazy. Just just take it. I don't want it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So like I said, with the exception of my jacket collection, which I have sold two of my jackets, my higher end jackets in the past couple of years because I needed the money and they Mm -hmm. were a fast sell. I mean, both of those jackets sold for $250 each within wow. a couple of days that's um, wild and they're both runway jackets heavily embroidered runway jackets those are definitely a bolo and then I have my one well actually no I have three HL pieces that I have myself one is a HL jacket that I will not get rid of um that jacket retailed for four thousand dollars oh my gosh yeah I need so to see all, this jacket it's all hand beaded I'll have to send you a picture of it afterwards yeah all hand beaded um, it's gorgeous. It does not fit me. It barely fit me when I bought it. <laughs> <laughs> so it really does not fit. Like at one, it literally gave me bruises on my arm because the way the jacket's constructed, it's oh, very man. like impression. Right. So um, 
<laughs> so yeah, I will not get rid of that. But and I still have a couple of my favorite pieces that I had that I don't want to get rid of. But yeah, it's like your own little museum gone. collection. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I feel like and, you know, as a reseller, you've got to just have a few pieces. You know, whether you know, I, yeah. I guess you got them at your last job, but whether you thrift them or have just had them for a long time, exactly. You just can't to pop- me, they are just like they are. They're my rainy day fun almost kind of. If I ever get yeah. to a point where like I, I need to, you know, I'm strapped for cash or I need to do X, Y, and Z. Like I know I have that stuff there yep. and I can just sell it. And I have I also have collectibles and stuff like that that I have um that I keep that are the same thing. But these jackets are what I consider part of that. Like I don't <laughs> it goes back to that Carrie Underwood not Carrie Underwood. Oh my god, Carrie Bradshaw quote <laughs> from Sex in the City. I, I like my money where I can see it hanging in my closet. <laughs> I think that's what it is. It's a variation of that, I know. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of how I feel. I don't. I would rather have the things that I could keep around and have than have a huge savings account. I could just sell this stuff if I needed to. So, right. It's my own personal vault. No, I get that. I've had that conversation with another reseller friend about these pieces that you know we love and we covet, but we, you know, we keep them because we know that they have a lot of value, and yes. if need be. If we ever needed the cash, we know that we could sell them and we could get some good money for it and it would help us, you know, in a tight yeah. situation. So, yeah, no, I, to- I completely understand the sentiment and I'm sure that there's probably people who are listening who who will as well. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, you know, moving kind of along in your journey, you said that, you know, you downloaded Poshmark. You really didn't use it for about a year and then... Well, I didn't uh, use it for, it's what, five months, something like that. It was, I downloaded it in April. I started using it in August. Okay. And that was kind of when you were in a tight money situation and you needed some mm-hmm. cash. Okay. Yes. So you just start selling stuff and then you said it kind of just continued. Like, why were you still doing it? Is that what yeah. you had said earlier? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I would just find myself. I would find myself on the app. I would find myself sending offers. Actually, no, at the time, I don't think offers to likers existed at that point in time. But I, I just kind of fi- found myself still doing it. And I was very unhappy at my job at that point in time. I had mm-hmm. well grown out my position at that point in time. And I was just treading water, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably grew out of that position about two years before I actually left it. I was just doing it. I don't know why. And I remember I found myself one weekend thinking, why am I, why, why am I listing this stuff? Why am I sharing these listings? Because at the time, I didn't know the existence of bots and everything like that. I was like, why, why am I doing this? And I couldn't figure out why. And then yeah. I went down the YouTube rabbit hole and found out, hey, people actually make a full-time job out of this. What the hell is happening? Mm-hmm. So you discover that people are doing it full-time. And in that same at that same time, you knew that you were likely going to leave your job. Mm-hmm. Was there any sort of planning or prep with reselling that you did, you know, kind of to just cover this in-between space of, you know, you're going to leave, leave your job. You're ramping up reselling. Like, what did that look like for you? Was there any ramping up that started to happen? Yeah. So that first buy that we did at the Goodwill bins, that was like my first time of like, okay, we're starting to experiment with this. I'm starting to actually like actively list. I'm doing this with the intention of planning a business. And I, I thought I had more time. I thought I had until June, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't expect to leave in March. So a lot of that planning really went out the window. And I kind of just was like, all right, we're doing this now. We're going for it. 
I was so drained and I was so burnt out of my job though that the planning I did was really poor and not great and it I I just needed a break at that point in time and even the first like six months to a year of working as a full-time reseller I was not putting 100% into it at all by any Mm -hmm. means I didn't necessarily realize that at the time I now realize that in retrospect but I had just been so burnt out that I just needed a break. I totally sympathize with that situation because when I left my job, you know, while I was trying to ramp things up, I don't think that you can fully mentally prepare what it looks like to go from, you know, working in a stressful full-time corporate work environment to being self-employed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how long, I mean, I guess you kind of touched on it and maybe it was a year for you, but do you feel like it really just took you a year to, I guess, um, move on from that experience of, you know, the corporate nine to five work life? I, I want to say it took about a year and a half or so, probably mm-hmm. it, it really was. So what really kicked me in the butt was when in 2019 when we moved into our new apartment that we have now I really and I I do think too I think being in my old apartment really did bring me down as well because I didn't really truly have the space to grow the way I wanted to or even to run my business the way I wanted to Mm -hmm. um and there was a lot of messiness and chaos in that apartment because we had gone from having my partner's cousin live with us for a while didn't know if he was coming back or not so there was just a lot of back and forth and like you know just the the chaos of that so I think being in that apartment really did bring me down as well Mm -hmm. so moving into a fresh space I actually took the entire month of July off that month from working besides shipping so I didn't do any new listings and stuff like that and just moved apartments for an entire month And then that August, I started August 1st and I really just dove in and also too, in doing that. So part of what I struggled with a lot, my first year and a half was my, my schedule, honestly, having a schedule Mm -hmm. that that really struggled with me a lot because I always, and I always knew that I worked better at night. So I would always still, so I would try and like listen to my body or whatever and really try and transition, start working more later at night. And I, I kept getting pulled down into this rabbit hole of Instagram because I would see these people out going, waking up five, six, seven, eight, nine AM ish going mm-hmm. out and getting all the stuff. They're done all the stuff for like noon or whatever. And they're on, we're talking about all this stuff. And I would just end up being in this cycle of dread. I would see everybody on Instagram doing all this stuff. Be like, Oh, I want to do that too. Mm-hmm. But then what would happen was I would get so exhausted just by watching all that stuff on Instagram, but by the time it came around for me to work, I'd be too tired to go and work. So I'd be like, all right, I'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm starting fresh. We're going to do this. Mm-hmm. And it was just a cycle. So what happened when we moved into this apartment, I decided to align my, my schedule with my partners. He works nights already. So he goes at the time he went to work at 5 PM. Um, now he doesn't go to work till seven and he would work until three to two thirty three o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know what? That's going to be my schedule too. And I've never looked back. Oh, nice. So That's nice I, that you've been able yeah. to match in that way. Yeah. So, and like I said, I've always worked better at night. It was always more inclined to do that. And I finally, I guess it was moving into this apartment. I don't know. Something gave me the confidence to finally mm-hmm. be like, I'm going to stop listening and following all these people on Instagram. 
and yeah. and letting that bring me down. And I know none of them were doing it intentionally. And I know none of it was done in like a negative light, but it, it was affecting me. So finally just owning that and owning that that's my schedule and seeing how many, how much more productive I was. I was so, I mean, I went from listing maybe a hundred things a month to listing a hundred things a week. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how drastic it was. My schedule changed. So now, I mean, obviously I don't do like the five to three anymore, really. I do, I typically start working about seven, eight o'clock at night. Um, my partner goes to work at 7 p.m. now. Um, he works until 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. So typically I start working about eight o'clock at night. And then I typically go to bed between four and five in the morning and sleep okay. until typically about one-ish. Um, right. I just have to make sure I'm up by like four o'clock to do my shipping because I have to walk my you know, walk to the post office. So I just have to make sure I'm up by four o'clock to go get my shipping done because I do my post office closes at five. I live super close to post office. I only live like two blocks away. So yeah, walking there gets me my daily walk and out and fresh air, but also to uh, trying to schedule um, pickup in an apartment that is also so close to the post office is very difficult because Mm because we're so close we are technically on like what's called a training route so Mm. we get new mail carriers all the time and also they they deliver all different times sometimes multiple times a day to my place trying to do a scheduled pickup because not only now you have the apartment aspect to it but then being so close it's just not gonna happen (laughs) right (laughs) so i will and the funny thing is it's actually faster for me to walk than it is for me to drive to the post office that's how close I am yeah (laughs) so as long as I'm up by four o'clock that's like I don't and the thing is I don't set that's the best part about I don't set alarms anymore unless I absolutely have to be up like for today yeah (laughs) like I knew I had yeah I had to be up by noon and like up and moving typically I'm up around one-ish like even yesterday I think I woke up at like 12-ish 12-30 yeah my husband was like what what are you doing up why are you awake already That's funny. Well, yeah. but I think I, I think what you you know you're saying is really the key to I don't know fi- some parts of finding su- success as a full time reseller is finding a schedule that works for you and going forward with it because when you do leave you know this corporate full time job they've created a schedule for you right they've decided yes. that you show up to work at eight or 9am, you leave at 5pm, you take your lunches at this time. And these are your expectations of your job or your position throughout the day. And so there's not, there's not too much guessing work in the things that you need to accomplish daily, weekly, monthly, right? Your boss is going to have expectations of you. But when you become self-employed, there's no, (laughs) there's no schedule. Nobody says, okay, here's what your life's going to look like. Yep. And as you mentioned, a lot of people turn to social media and they see what other people are doing, which can be great in a lot of ways because you get new ideas and um, you think of things that you hadn't thought about before, but in the same breath, you know, you look at what other people are doing and you think, okay, I, that's not me. I can't do that. That's not working for me. And so it's hard at first because you think, okay, well, what's wrong with me? How come I am not doing the business in the same way that they're doing it? 
and you need to have that self-awareness too. Mm -hmm. That is a huge part of it. Having that self-awareness to know that this is not going to work for me or that this is influencing me in a way that I don't want to be influenced. Yes. And that self-awareness is critical. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't have that the first year and a half. I did not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was completely like, you know, why am I not doing this? I need to do X, Y, and Z in order to be successful. Mm -hmm. I see this person doing this much in sales. It's because they're doing X, Y, and Z. I need to do X, Y, and Z then. Like, no, no. Like, build your own path and make your own schedule. But also, too, everyone's like, oh, you get to work for yourself. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want. All this stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, but hold yourself accountable to some sort of schedule yeah you can take your time right. off yeah you can change it whenever you want but that's the that to me it's like everyone thinks self-employment is like oh you get to do whatever you want whenever you want like yes and no it to me it's getting to create your own schedule mm-hmm. but you still need to keep a sort of schedule it right. can change but that's the thing is you get to be the one that decides if it changes or not not anybody mm-hmm. else yes and that's the part of self-employment i don't think a lot of people understand when they're first starting yeah and I think that you know when you said when you look at other people and you see that the schedules they've created and you think okay this that like doesn't work for me I think that we also forget that it's like that person has you know and you mentioned that it's like you know it's not that person's fault necessarily but that person has created what works for them and and as somebody coming in that's new to reselling we look at it and we say oh well okay I guess I have to do it like them but no, that's the whole point is that you're supposed to be creating the, yeah. a business that works for you, right? Exactly. And, and in that is a schedule that works for you and a business model that works for you and all these different things that are so personal to you, right? There's no one size fits all of like, you need to sell these categories and these brands for these prices, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's really... And it's it's a build your own trial. business. Yeah, it's a lot of trial and error. So when you see people doing things that are successful, sometimes you just have to try it out to see if it's going to work for you or not. Yeah, I And agree. then have that self-awareness that if it doesn't work, you need to move on and find something else. Yes, for sure. For sure. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah. All right. Well, thinking about your reselling journey, you know, you started on Poshmark. Where do you sell currently? What <laughs> platforms? I sell on eBay, Poshmark, and Depop. But the funny thing is I started on Poshmark and I am very anti-Poshmark. I'm not anti-Poshmark. Okay. I'm not going to say that. I'm very <laughs> anti-Posh love, I guess you want to call it. eBay is my main source of income. It's like 80% of my business. Mm-hmm. Um, and then essentially do cross-list some things to Poshmark and Depop, but not everything. So I did experiment with whatnot for a while. I did do Amazon for a while. Amazon was very stressful, but very lucrative. So I've done a lot of that experimenting. What I found works for me now is having eBay as my main core and then cross list selectively to Poshmark and Depop. And for people who have started on Poshmark, because a lot of people do, because it's so Mm user-friendly, you know, but they, they want to branch out, but they're nervous to do so. What advice would you give to those people who are thinking about it, but haven't pulled the trigger on it? Start eBay immediately. Start it now. (laughs) Two of the biggest things I think that scare people. Well, two of the biggest factors I think that are really important with eBay is your account health. I think that is probably the most 
underrated, but most important thing about eBay, your account health, Mm -hmm. you need the metrics, you need to have a good standing account. And that is more than just how many returns you have, or, you know, if you're shipping on time or whatever, it's about building up your feedback. It's about, you know, padding your metrics enough where one item not described, whether it's a false item not described or not, is not going to hurt you. Never cancel for being out of stock. Dear God, no, never, never cancel for being out of stock. (laughs) That is an automatic defect. And those things take a year to come off. And I think the other big thing is shipping. People are so scared about the shipping. Yeah. And that's, I did a whole post that literally was written specifically eBay shipping for Poshmark sellers. Oh, nice. Is that, is that pinned? I'm like, is that pinned on your Instagram profile? It's it's pinned on my page. Yes. Okay, cool. One of the the things I'm most proud of when it comes to Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And eh, don't do free shipping. Just don't, just don't do free shipping ever, especially not in the secondhand clothing market. A lot of people think they need to do free shipping to be competitive. And in some categories, yes, you do need to do it, but generally use clothing. You don't need to. And then look at people's stores that you know are being successful and have a similar business model to you. You know, if you're someone who buys a lot of luxury goods and sells high-end flips, find those accounts that have that on Instagram and follow them and seek them out and look at their stores. What do their stores look like? What are they doing? Do they offer returns? Do they charge shipping? What do their descriptions look like? Are they minimal? Are they, you know, extensive? All this stuff. If you're a bin seller, you know, find those resellers that are doing that, that are successful. Look at their Instagram, look at, but most importantly, go stalk their eBay store. Mm-hmm. That's what yeah. I did for months. There's a few resellers, ironically, you were one of them <laughs> <laughs> that I went through. I said, these people have similar business models. This is before I think you got into liquidation. You were doing a lot of bins trips at the time, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I went through and I stalked all these people's stores. Every day, I was like, "All right, what are they doing? What are their what What do their descriptions look like? What do their titles look like? What do their pictures look like?" And I was like, "And that's what I was modeling myself after because I know that I'm I'm a bins seller. Like that that's what I am. I know that and I own it." So yeah, I think that those are like the biggest things I think that comes with eBay. I mm-hmm. kind of forget the direct point of this question, so I'm trying to go back to it. I can't remember. Right no, now. yeah, no, it's just like you know, <laughs> advice or tips for people who are thinking of of trying it out but they're just nervous too but I think that that was great information I mean you know like you started out saying just just do it right just get on it and and that's generally what I encourage people to do as well I'd say like get on there and get messy like you know Mm -hmm. if you're curious if you're going to mess things up the answer is yes right you're going to mess up shipping for a little bit you're going to probably mess up a return. You know, you're mm-hmm. probably going to lose a little bit of money, not anything significant, hopefully, but you're going to mess things up a few times in the beginning, but similar to, you know, going back to talking about job experience and, you know, when you had to make those big decisions and those meetings with all those executives, right? Mistakes are going to be made. It's not the end of the world. You're going yeah. to learn from them and you're going to get better. It's not a yep. reason to not try. Exactly. I mean, you don't have to try, but it's not, it's not a great reason to not try. Exactly. Okay. So, you know, you talked about a move that you did since you have started reselling. So can you tell me about your workspace and business operation now? Are you, is your workspace your living space as well? Yes. 
yes. So we, when we were looking for new apartments, we only looked at one and we found the perfect <laughs> one apparently. That's um, awesome. Yeah. So we have a two bedroom apartment right now, but the way the apartment layout is, it's very weird, but it's like a loft style kind of, but there is two bedrooms. So there's like, so we have like a living room, a dining room, a kitchen, but then there's this other extra nook area that was offset from everything else, but didn't really have a purpose. Like what would you put there normally? It's too mm-hmm. long to be like a living room type. And it's like the dining type is clearly not there. Like, what are you supposed to use this for? And essentially mm-hmm. worked out. That's like what I consider like my office nook. It, it literally, the layout is perfect for it. My desk fits on the one side of it. The other side's my photography area, stuff like that. So that way I don't need to cram everything into my second bedroom because that office nook is right next to my second bedroom, which is technically a quote unquote office. There is a bed in there, in there. Well, here, because I'm sitting on that right now. Um, <laughs> so the, the second bedroom is all of my inventory, listed and unlisted, it's all in here. Um, I have like aisles of bins. I don't have shelves. I stick, stack bins on top of each other. Because to me, the shelves would take up too much space. And I would yeah. not have as many bins if I did it that way. So I have like these three aisles of bins. I have another aisle of bins that's just all unlisted stuff. And they have this huge closet. The one half of the closet is stuff that is either stored in the closet for that's like listed so jackets I'll hang jackets in there jackets are too big to put in bins I feel like mm-hmm. also like purses everything like that I have all on the one side and then the other side is all supplies extra boxes everything like that so I do kind of have like two working areas but not really at the same time mm-hmm. but also the way the layout is there is a very clear division between my office work area and like the rest of the apartment which I think is critical I think having a very clear established guidelines of where your work area is is important because I see a lot of people are like oh well I can work from anywhere they don't have like a clear office they're like working from their couch Mm -hmm. or this that which is great you can do that sometimes but I feel like you really need a dedicated workspace area whether it just be a desk in a room somewhere I think it is better to have a full space as much as you can and not have a shared space. Mm-hmm. But having a dedicated work area was that to me was life changing for my business. Yeah, I agree. Because I didn't have that in my old place. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think that's initially the exciting part of becoming a reseller is thinking, oh, I can just have this job at my house in my space. Right. But then. Mm-hmm as you and I both know, this job takes up a lot of things. (laughs) There's a lot of, there's a lot of little items. And so it kind of can go start to bleed into all areas of your living space. And suddenly there feels like there's no divide, right? In what is your personal life? And then what is your business? And for some people, it works. I mean, some people really don't mind it. Um, Mm -hmm. But for some people, it really doesn't work. And again, that goes back to kind of figuring out what is or isn't going to work for you. And, and sounds like you've kind of, you got that down pat. So that's great. You know, thinking about your business right now, you know, what are some of the challenges you feel like you face in your business? Time and space, I think are my biggest ones. Um, I've started to reclaim my time a little bit in different ways. I I hired a VA about two years ago, which was life-changing for me. They do my eBay drafts, everything like that. I now have her cross-listing as well, which is really nice. 
Uh, so I regain time that way. I still feel like I don't have enough time sometimes, but <laughs> I'm always constantly trying to like revamp my, some of my process, stuff like that. And another way that I've tried to like reclaim my time a little bit is I've started doing consignment and I, it's only with one or two people and I don't do it with a lot of people, but that's really nice because it literally just gets delivered to my doorstep. Oh, that's and so nice. I don't have to spend that time at the bins going through and because the way our bins are, because they are auction style and everything like that. Yes, I can go in one day and get like 400 items in a day in only just a couple hours. But it also means being there at 9am, which is not conducive to my, my lifestyle. <laughs> and then being there at 9am, hoping that the auctions are good. And then hoping you don't have much competition because what you pay is determined by what your competition, what everyone else is willing to pay. Um, and then going through and sorting through all that. And then once, because I do live in Southern California, it is all outside where we have to sort it all. Um, mm. The auction part is inside, but where we sort it is outside. So it's like, we have to make sure it's not too hot. We have to make sure that the weather is okay. Um, we've been getting a good amount of rain lately for some odd reason. This is the most rain I've ever seen here. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so we have to make sure that it wasn't raining or it's not too hot because you can't be out too hot in the heat, you know, or it's just there's a lot of other factors that come into it um so having it, the stuff delivered to my doorstep is really nice but then I have to learn how to manage my cash flow a little bit better because mm -hmm. I do have to make sure I keep that percentage put aside and I'm used to having all the profits just for me you know right. and now I have to plan accordingly where the you know a certain percentage of my profits are not for me and they have to be put aside to do my consignment payouts Mm -hmm. So learning how to manage my cash flow with that is is a challenge I've come up with, but I've been doing it okay, I feel like. And when I say it's a challenge, it's not that it's necessarily hard. It's just new for me, you know? Right. So, yeah. and my business is not completely consignment. I still do go to the bins, but it's a nice supplement for it because I do, I, I run a volume business. I have 2,300 active listings. So having, you know, a constant steady flow and supply of inventory and never have, or I should say, never not having a death pile. Everyone's always like anti-death pile, all this stuff. I'm like, I, I almost, my business almost crashed in 2020 because mm -hmm. I used to operate with no death pile. And I was very <laughs> proud of that. And I would always <laughs> rave it and I would always advocate for it. And then the pandemic hit. Yeah. And everything was closed. I had nothing to list. Right. I had a little bit of back stock and I, I knew exactly how much back stock I had. I knew exactly when I would run out of inventory and I was starting to freak out a little bit. Thankfully, I had a, a friend that I had met at the bins and she was redoing something in her place. I don't, I don't know the exact situation. She's like, Hey, do you want to buy my entire death pile? Oh, wow. And that was my very, very first big purchase. I was terrified to make that purchase because mm -hmm. the very first time I had, a, I spent, I paid her six hundred dollars. It's the first time I spent, ever spent that much on inventory at one point in time. Yeah, because at the auctions at the time I was only dropping one hundred fifty, two hundred dollars every time I went. Now right. my budget for the auctions is much higher, and I get a lot more stuff. But that very first big purchase was terrifying. But it, it's what made my business last during the pandemic, and I will never not have a death pile ever again. <laughs> it's crazy. Isn't that never. funny how that changed a lot of people's perspectives? I know. And even, I still even hate calling it a death pile. I call it backstock because it's yeah. exactly what it is. If, right. It's only a death pile if you're not, if you don't have a plan to actively list it. I agree. Yeah. So. Or um, you could call it money pile. Some people like calling it money pile. Yes. 
<laughs> I mean, it's like, it's just, it's just backstab. It's stuff that it will be listed. It just hasn't gotten there yet. Right. So. Yeah. And it's, it's sometimes hard for people to understand that too, because it, for other small businesses, it maybe wouldn't make sense to have this, you know, inventory that's just kind of sitting there unprocessed, but mm-hmm. it is kind of this, yeah, it's like this little guarantee for us that we will always have things because, you know, hopefully there's not another pandemic that comes up in our lives, but it also, uh, can help you in times where maybe you just can't make it out to where you would source, right? Maybe there's something going on in your life, preventing you from being able to do that. And so having this, you know, pile or whatever we want to call it of stuff, um, can come in very handy. And of course that, you know, there's always that fine line of what, you know, how big, how big should a death pile be? What is it before it becomes too much? I think that's, you know, I I think, I think the key part of that is not necessarily, I don't think there could ever, well, yes, there can be too much if you're like drowning in it and you have more unlisted than listed, but I think it's critical knowing exactly how many items are in your death pile. You know, I always knew exactly how much I had in my death pile. I knew how much I listed on average a week. So I knew exactly when I would run out. That's smart. You know? And yeah. that, that to me is the key to actually, to actually having it be truly backstop and not a death pile. Yeah. Is knowing what's there and keeping track of it. Because you never know when, I mean, an issue that I started to run into with the auctions is um, there are some new people that have been coming to the auctions that have very deep pockets. Mm-hmm. And they're running me up on stuff and either I have to overpay or I back out and just don't even bid against them or I do, I, you know, I just don't win. They kept going and I was like, I can only pay 200 for this. I think that's all it's worth. And they're bidding it up to 300, something like that. So, you know, that's another external factor that I have no control over. I could just hopefully go when they are not there. Right. You know, or hopefully we're not bidding on the same things. Right. Or hopefully. Or hopefully they overpaid last time so they don't have as much money this time. I, I thought that was the case, but I talked to the manager there. It doesn't sound like they're running out of cash anytime soon. Well, darn it. <laughs> I know. Um, and also, too, because I do live so close to the border. I mean, I not so close. I'm not in San Diego or anything like that. I do live relatively close to the border. Mm-hmm. Um, we get a lot of people that come up from Mexico and come and buy. They mm-hmm. all pay cash. Yeah. So... And they come in and they, they have some pretty deep pockets and mm-hmm. they, they buy a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm small fish compared to them. And there's some, when I say small fish, that's even when I'm buying like five, six bins. Mm-hmm. I know, I'm not wow. just talking about when I buy one bin, I'm buying like five or six sometimes. And they have like double what I have. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. wild. And like, there's some people that, you know, like that you just don't even try against sometimes. Like there's, there's one guy, he buys a ton of the shoes. I don't mm-hmm. even try, I don't even try and bid against him because I know I'm never, ever going to, first of all, I don't even like listic shoes. <laughs> so there's going to be something really special in there for me to even right. try and bid on it. Yeah. Um, and that's the other thing you see with, with the auctions is I don't know what I'm always getting. It's a big blue bin. Mm-hmm. I can look through what's on top. I can dig through what's on top a little bit, mm-hmm. but w- there could be something that's buried at the bottom that is pure gold. And right. you'll never know. Like there is one bin that we bought. We actually bought it because, so I'm superstitious sometimes. <laughs> and for some reason, I um I always make my partner go and do the bidding on the auctions. Because the first couple times he did it, we got really, really good ones for like dirt cheap. And ever since then, I was like, all right, you're doing the bidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's like, a, it's a weird superstition. But 
Because one time he bit on one by accident, actually, and uh-huh. we won it. And buried at the bottom was a denim trench coat with leather collar and leather cuffs from Coach that Whoa. sold overnight for $250. Oh, that's amazing. There is no way possible that I could have ever known that jacket right. was in that bin. Right. So there are sometimes I'll get a bin. Everything that's on top looks great. And the bottom is all baby clothes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I And I don't know. And I just have to take educated guesses and dis- I have to make educated decisions. Like we'll go through all the, like as much as we can beforehand and we'll make decisions on which ones we want to bid on, like what our budget is and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But, and it, it just comes down to seeing what you see on top and then using what I know and my knowledge of what I've gotten in the past Yeah. to determine of whether that makes that bin worth it or not. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a gamble. It's a gamble. It's not always the right decision. And sometimes it's the best decision. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You never know. You never know. But that's why we love the bins, right? Yes, exactly. And also (laughs) it's, um, so before I started doing the auctions, I used to go to the tables. I went to the tables five days a week because our tables are so small that I could not get enough to substantiate me for over a week. Mm-hmm. like any more than that now I can get enough in one binge trip to last me uh, sometimes a full month yeah but I was having to go five days a week to the tables that was so exhausting it, going five days a week and even though I was only going a couple hours every time that was so exhausting on my body yeah and I mean my bins are only 10 minutes from me right and oh that's nice ma- though 10 minutes yeah but I also have like five bins within a two three hour driving distance of me maybe more yeah right so my bins are only 10 minutes from me and going five days a week was so terrible on my body that I was like I can't do this again like I cannot yeah and I was staying there for a couple hours each time but they were just so small and I don't like going to, I don't like going to the LA bins at mm-hmm. all yeah um, I've been there a couple of times I tried to go there you know, when I was trying to like rework my business model a little bit, it was before I was getting back into the auctions and I really wanted to figure out a way to like really bulk up and find a place, place to find more inventory all at once in one day or maybe two days. So I tried to experiment with LA bins and I hated it. And also it was so expensive. Yeah. I had like sticker shot. So my bins are drastically cheaper at the buy the pound than the LA bins are. I had like sticker shock. Because oh, when I went to go pay for my cart, they were like, mm-hmm. it's like $100. Like, that's no more than $50 for the stuff. What are you talking about? <laughs> but it's like two twenty nine dollars a pound. Yeah. I and know. It's the crazy. The price keeps going up. I know. And it's just, it, yeah. It's like, at what point does it not make sense anymore? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's like my, so my, my tables on the side now they do it by the piece because they didn't move the scales so it's a dollar a piece at my at the tables but when they did have a scale at the other location so they've moved locations a couple times since I've been going there in the five years I've been going there mm-hmm. there was one time when they moved locations and they were closed for like a month ironically this has actually worked out perfectly they were closed for the one month that I actually took off to move <laughs> oh that's it worked crazy. out perfectly yeah yeah so but they were like trying to get people back in there and stuff like that. Do you know it got down to as cheap as fifty cents a pound at one point? Oh my god! Kept gosh. lowering the price. Yeah. So I stocked up when it was at fifty cents a pound. Like I stocked up big time, 
and now well now they're a dollar a piece but before that they were only i think they capped out the highest they went was a dollar 19 a pound mm-hmm. yeah so going from that dollar 19 a pound to 229 a pound it's steep yeah it's i was like and also the composition at la bands is ruthless yes ruthless yeah um and there's just so many tables oh my mm-hmm. god so yeah. much there I was like, I, I cannot, I can't keep doing this. This was, It was just not for me. And also, yeah. I, I mean, I found decent stuff, don't get me wrong, but the stuff I was finding was not that great to justify the time, the price, and the exhaustion of going there. Mm-hmm. So um, I've given up on the LA bins. I've only been like, I think probably a total of maybe three to five times, and I will not go back again. <laughs> I, well, I, I mean, it sounds like you've got, yeah, a great situation for you now. I mean, 10, having a bins location 10 minutes from you where you're not having to bend over the tables, looking through mm-hmm. stuff five days a week, you know, and now yeah. just being able to buy items in bulk. I mean, it's like you said, it's a bummer that you've got this strong competition with deep pockets, but it sounds like luckily you're not entirely priced out, which is good. and. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully it kind of continues to stay that way. <laughs> yeah. And I also try and go on the weekends because it will be hit or miss if those people with the deep pockets are coming in. But I also, I don't have any conversation from the vintage boys on the oh, weekends yeah. typically. That's they typically funny. don't come on the weekends. Right. Um, because they have their, their markets or their events or what have you. So weekends work out better for me that way. So I at least eliminate one part of the competition. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's most good. of the time, not always, but most of the time. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, where do you see then, I guess on the flip side, where do you see the future of your business going? You spoke about how you're trying out consignment and it sounds like you've got this great schedule between you and your partner that works really well for your lifestyle. I mean, do you have plans for the rest of 2023 on, on changing your business in any way, or is it you know, are you looking to keep the status quo? I have a couple of things that I'm looking at and visiting. I'm still, still very much in the planning stages of it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I'm not really confident to like talk on any of it really, but there are some changes I do want to make. I I would like to add in an extra person into the business that is a more in-person person. person. Um, Mm -hmm. When I mean that, not necessarily someone who's actually like here with me, but like not a VA either, you know, someone yeah. who is a body. And I don't know what that looks like yet because I don't necessarily want to hire somebody like as a an hourly employee. I would like to have somebody that is more like a built-in partner kind of thing, but I don't know yet. I don't know exactly what that looks like. It's still really much in the planning stages kind of. Um, but the overall gist of what people see of my business, I don't think is going to change. I think the front facing part of, you know, what people see, whether it be on Instagram or my eBay store or whatever, I don't think will change much. I think it's more of a um, back end change that I'm hoping to adjust, I guess you could say. Yeah, no, I get it. It sounds like you're, you've got a, some plans in the works and, and, you know, possibly hiring somebody in person is, is, uh, you know, a scary decision, but it's also an exciting decision at the same time as well. there's nothing like having a little bit a little bit extra help having an extra hand is nice I know Uh, especially having this consignment part set up where it's like somebody sourcing for me just sends it to me that's beautiful 
Right. I know. Especially if it's stuff that you like too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, they know exactly the stuff I like to sell and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So, and I know it's already been handpicked. It's, I mean, it's still from the bins, but it's already been handpicked. Yeah. All of that type of stuff. And it's, that part is nice that I think that's probably what started my wheels turning and thinking about, you know, okay, what's some back end changes that I could potentially make? Yeah, no, I mean, that's great. I think that that's how great decisions are sometimes made or thought of in our business is when we identify something that has been made easier for us or something that all of a sudden it's like, oh, I really enjoy this part or this aspect of the business. How do I, how do I create more of this for myself? So that's really awesome. All right. Well, Looking back now on your long journey and working in fashion to becoming a full-time reseller, I'm curious, Ashley, what advice would you give yourself when you were first starting out? I think, I I mean, this is more of advice I would give to somebody else. I do feel like I did this. One of the best things I did when I first started out was Mm -hmm. my creating a core base inventory system that was flexible and malleable to allow you to expand as much as you want. I feel like that's the one thing I did do right. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think that's for somebody starting out, that's like the best advice I would give them. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, my dog is up and I can hear her clack around in the background on the hardwood. Oh no, I can't hear anything. You're good. <laughs> um, so um, I think that's definitely the one thing. And I think the, what advice I would give myself is just to uh, have, I wish I would have told myself to have that self-awareness a little bit earlier and to listen to what works for me instead of what's working for everybody else. And also just being kind to yourself is mm-hmm. really, I was really hard on myself those first couple of years. I think just, you know, being kind to yourself, don't be too hard on yourself. There will be ups and downs in this business, but hopefully get yourself to a point where, you know, those ups and downs don't impact you as much anymore. Yeah, that's really what it is. And don't take stuff personal. Don't take lowball offers personal. Don't, because I took them personal at first. Don't take returns personal. Don't take nasty messages that you get from people personal. It's all business. Mm-hmm. And honestly, what I've noticed is coming back to this people with kindness and a professionalism works 10 times better than anything I've ever seen people use. Cause I've seen people get snarky, you know, people always post that stuff on Instagram. It's crazy customer. And like, they're getting all snarky and they're like super unprofessional in their response. Stuff like that. Like, it's not going to get you anywhere. Just be mm-hmm. kind, be professional. And if you made a mistake, just own it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think I would tell myself to have that self-awareness and just be kinder to myself. Truly. Yeah. No, I think that that's a, a great one that uh, I don't think I've heard somebody say before is yeah, being kinder to yourself, because I, I agree with you. I think I was really hard on myself. If you're somebody who is, you know, I don't know, maybe um, thinks big and has expectations of your career or whatever it might be. When you go to self-employment, it's easy to feel like you're not doing a lot right. And so giving yourself that grace to to just mess up (laughs) in your first year there. And you also have to realize too, everyone that you see online all has different living situations. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether they have somebody else that helps them out in like a financial aspect because they have a double income household. Right. Um, So they might have to pay for their insurance. It could be on their partner's insurance or something like that. Right. Um, 
But the best thing that I ever did was there's also cost of living is very different in different places. And that's something that that really, because I saw these people, you know, making a living full time. What I wasn't looking at, though, like this is when I first started, what I wasn't looking at, though, was where they were living. Mm-hmm. The cost of living is drastically different mm-hmm. where I lived, to where they lived. So they need a lot less to have a full-time income. Right. I think there's a website, I think it's called Payscale or something like that, where you can mm-hmm. go in and you can put what you make, you know, whatever your salary is, and then put in where you live and where you want to move to. And it will tell you the salary that you need to keep the same style of living. So say, for example, say if I make, I like to use a hundred thousand because it's like an easy rounder round right. number um i always like to put in a hundred thousand okay a hundred thousand where i live if i move to x y and z place let's say the middle of the country in the middle of nowhere how much would i need to maintain that same lifestyle and the website tells you that it'll be mm-hmm. like okay if you're making a hundred thousand dollars now you pay all your bills that if you move to the middle of nowhere kansas you only need to make forty thousand dollars to live the same lifestyle mm-hmm. going onto that website was mind-blowing to me and life-changing because mm-hmm. what I would do is I would take all these people that were my favorite people that I would look up to and be like, they're making a full-time income. They're doing all X, Y, and Z, all this stuff. So I put in where they lived. I put in where I lived. And I did some of those calculations. And they were vastly different. Mm-hmm. And that was a reality check for me. Yeah. that's. I always say that as well. I'm like, everybody's living situation, whether it be geographically or just the actual home, right? Some Mm -hmm. people have mortgages, some people have rents, some people have children, multiple children. Some people can sustain their entire self, their rent, their mortgage, whatever, all of their bills that they have on the same amount that I pay in monthly rent every month. Right. Yeah. So it's just different. And that's why you can't just look at one reseller's business and think that's Mm -hmm. who I'm going to compare my my business too. Cause it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't add up. Nope. <laughs> the math won't math. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And knowing those and putting that, those numbers into perspective was definitely eye opening. Yeah. No, that's great advice. Yeah. I, I would, yeah. I tell people that as well. So I, <laughs> I agree with you wholeheartedly on that one. <laughs> I know. Well, I think you. a lot of people I think a lot of people think when they hear, you know, everyone has a different lifestyle, they automatically think, oh, well, they have a partner that helps support them. They have X, Y, and Z that, you know, or they have a trust fund or whatever. They always want to think that they never, no one ever goes to cost of living. Right. I feel like. And I think that's the key part. I think that's more important than anything else. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Totally. Yeah. It's something that doesn't get taken into perspective as well. So. Yeah, no, it's good to keep in mind. Well, thank you so much, Ashley. This has been such a fun interview. You're I feel welcome. like I, we probably could have talked like another couple hours, but I can't <laughs> tie you up. You got to get that shipping done. It's all, it's going to be four o'clock soon. <laughs> I know. Well, it's like two o'clock here. So I still got a little bit of time, but I think the, the cats are getting a little antsy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we're going to let the cats go play. We're going to free you up so awesome. that you can throw some snacks at them um but thank you so much i appreciate it and i will talk with you soon awesome thank you for having me i appreciate it of course all right talk to you soon bye bye thanks again to ashley for being on this week's episode of the podcast again you can find ashley on instagram under the username millennial.mouse and all of that information will be in the show notes of this episode for you 
My apologies for getting this episode up late on Sunday night. Without getting too into it, I just haven't been feeling so great this past week. I know, again. Unfortunately, self-employment doesn't come with the same sort of sick days that you get in a traditional 9-to-5 job. There isn't anyone to cover your work when you're out of commission. During these times, I try and pace myself and focus on what I can accomplish in small amounts one day at a time. Anyway, I do hope your April has been a fruitful month for you. Taxes are due April 18th. If you haven't yet filed, make sure to file an extension if you need more time. And let's hope that folks start getting their refunds soon and start shopping online in our stores. So until next time, keep on listing and keep on selling. I know firsthand how exhausting it can be to manage all the tasks in my reselling business, like listing, bookkeeping, and more. But I found a solution that has given me back my time and allowed me to grow my business, hiring a virtual assistant. And now I want to share that solution with you. That's why I've created an online course called Hiring a Virtual Assistant for Your Reselling Business. With this course, you'll learn everything you need to know to find, train, and manage a virtual assistant like a pro. And because I want to make this course accessible to everyone, I'm offering a special coupon code, flip the script, that gives you $10 off at checkout. Don't miss out on this opportunity to take your reselling business to the next level. Sign up now at hiringava.com and let's enjoy the freedom and fun of growing our businesses together. Again, you can sign up at hiringava.com.